Listener Production. Diego Perez, more commonly known as Young Pueblo, is a storytelling poet and writer whose work, most well known on Instagram, imparts a spacious perspective on what we're all reckoning with now. Young writes, I closed my eyes to look inward and found a universe waiting to be explored. In this episode, Diego and I traverse the healing journey of the individual, the fundamentals of Buddhism, and the power of practicing sympathetic joy. There are a lot of doors that we create or walls that we make in our own mind, and they're easily circumvented and broken down when we are just able to to act in the opposite manner. And um, I have found that the more joy I feel for others, much more easily, much more naturally, that I'm able to, you know, enjoy things better that are happening to me. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Young Pueblo is the author of two books, Inward and The Love Between Us. Within these books, Young explores the movement from self-love to unconditional love. In this episode, you will learn the power of letting go and that when we release our personal burdens, we contribute to a global peace. Your writing reaches over a million people daily on social media and people know you as Young Pueblo. But can you tell us who is Diego Perez? Because that is your real name. Yeah, so Diego Perez is who I am in everyday life. And uh, when I write on the internet or in the books that, I, that I'm working on, um, I've decided to use the pen name Young Pueblo. So Young Pueblo literally means young people. Um, you know, it's the English word young. I just dropped an O out of it. And then um, Pueblo, it's a word that's, you know, often used all around South America. And it not only sort of connects me with my roots, because um, I was originally born in Ecuador, uh, but it just reminds me when I write that all of humanity is still very young. Mm. Um, it's, an, it's an idea. It's sort of like a little piece of social commentary, right? It's not a word that describes me per se, but it, it's something that I know, especially when I started meditating, that all of us, you know, all human beings as a collective, we have so much growing up to do, so much maturing. You know, there are just simple, basic things that we were taught as children, especially when we entered school. Um, you know, the most basic things like cleaning up after ourselves, um, not hitting each other, telling the truth, not lying, being kind to one another. Uh, these are things that we may be able to do as individuals, but on the grand collective scale, you know, talking globally, we don't know how to do these things at all. And um, I think this century in particular is one where a lot of maturing is happening. So I try to make my work as a young Pueblo um, to be a little piece of that, you know, sort of mass movement to just make the world much more humanistic, much safer for people to live in and just a kinder place in general. And what got you to be the beautiful poet that you are today? You, it it wasn't always like that. And take us through your childhood and what in, what led you on the path that you are on now? Sure. Um, So when I was young, you know, I, um, I moved with my family. We emigrated from Ecuador to the United States and um, I grew up in Boston 
when we got here, I was about four years old. My brother was 10. Um, my parents were in their early thirties and we struggled. You know, we, um, it was, we experienced a lot of poverty. And I think that was sort of one of my um, defining characteristics that molded my identity. Um, just experiencing not having enough mm-hmm. and um, seeing all the tension that that created in my family where, you know, we would be struggling for money. And as I grew up, I, that I got really interested and became a part of the world of activism, um, particularly organizing in Boston. And um, I think from the ages of 15 to 18, I was a part of a wonderful organization called Boston Youth Organizing Project. And that really showed me how much power people can have when they come together around a common cause. And that was such a pivotal, pivotal experience where I got to see that if we really came together, we can change our material reality. Mm. And that was a really transformative experience. And it showed me not only that we can change things, but that there's a lot of things that need to be changed about our world for our world to become, you know, and it's, it's interesting because we've definitely come a long way, especially from like the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, but we still have a ways to go. You know, our world can be, um, much more equal, much more balanced, much less harmful, you know, directly and indirectly. Um, our systems could become much more compassionate, but, um, even though as I was learning that, you know, through the organizing work that I was doing, I, there were a lot of issues that I hadn't dealt with as an individual. It had so much sadness and anxiety that led me into developing really poor habits, um, habits that ended up pushing me into a lot of drug use. And, you know, I sort of just lost myself and lost that, um, that like vigor to really help the world. And I ended up just becoming so focused in pleasure that um, I felt like my life was coming to an early end um, when I was about 23 years old. And that, you know, when I hit that wall, when I hit that rock bottom, um, it was in that moment that I decided to really start turning my life around. And I started being really honest with myself. And I was asking myself, you know, why was I turning to drugs? Why was I turning to partying? Why was I trying to just run away from myself? And I found, you know, this, basically this entire universe inside of myself that was completely undiscovered, that was unknown to me. And um, about a year after that, after I stopped using the hard drugs and all of that and um, started really building better habits, um, I started meditating. And when I started meditating Vipassana, uh, that was the first course I did was July of 2012. Um, That was probably, you know, one of the most transformative experiences I've had in my life where I, um, because I started the deconditioning process of all of these you know, patterns that I've had that have led me in the wrong direction, um, a new sense of creativity came, came up just very naturally. And I discovered that, you know, instead of being a banker, which I thought was what I was initially going to be, um, I should be a writer mm-hmm. and I should really focus on my personal healing. And, you know, though I have so much healing left to go and I'm not fully liberated or anything like that, um, you know, there are things that I could share along the way that hopefully may help people. You know, it's so interesting, Diego, because I feel that I actually had quite a similar experience to you and you actually write some people get to rock bottom before they change because at that distance they can then see who they want to be. And I didn't get into drugs or any of that stuff, but I had that dark night of the soul where I remember Mm. saying to myself, oh, my God, there must be more to life than this. Mm. There must be more to life. And it's not... Not everyone has to go through that dark night of the soul to be able to discover Mm -hmm. themselves again. But what was that pivotal moment for you, that exact moment where you decided to look inward? 
Yeah, the, uh, there was um, one particular moment that where everything shifted. There was one night where I remember I had um, I used a bunch of drugs and I had really sort of pushed my body to the edge and I felt like I was having a heart attack. You know, I was literally laying on the ground feeling the intensity of, um, you know, all these like different energies moving through my body, you know, literally like drugs surging through my body and just feeling horrible, feeling like the, how I had wrecked my body, feeling this incredible weakness. Like my heart felt like it was going to explode. And in that moment, not only was I fearful for my life, you know, um, but I felt such a deep sense of embarrassment. I felt like I had um, moved so far away from my highest potential. Like I was just moving in the total opposite direction. And um, in that moment, I started remembering, you know, who I was when I was an organizer, when I was um, 16, 17, and how many people, um, you know, with the group of people that I was organizing with, how many people we had helped and how, how wonderful it, helped, it felt to help other people and to be caring and compassionate. And I started really seeing that um, what was missing was that I was ignoring myself, was that I was ignoring what was happening inside of me. And then the day after that, um, everything changed. You know, I, I just put everything down that I was doing. Um, and I started just practicing radical honesty. And I started checking in with myself constantly, you know, like literally just slowly building self-awareness. And from there, I started seeing, you know, I could eat better. My body is demanding exercise. I, you know, um, need to start telling myself the truth when I feel um, a particular craving to you know, to smoke more marijuana, to do drugs, to do anything, um, ask myself why, right? What's happening? What is pushing me to want to do these things? And, um, and through that, I think that just helped me just, um, come alive in a different way. I remember it felt like a, like almost like an internal Renaissance where Mm -hmm. I was like really getting to meet myself. And, um, that first year was really beautiful. It was just like slowly reclaiming Mm -hmm. my power. It's true, isn't it? I remember for myself as well, when I had that sort of dark night and I remember crying and just thinking, you know, what, where am I? And then going the next day, similar to you, to look inward, to find all the books I could do reading on how I could basically change my life. And in that first year, the changes were miraculous. And Huge, it, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's, <laughs> And then I realised, my God, this stuff works. Like I'd never really thought it. I, I kind of taken an interest here and there, but when you actually put some of these disciplines into practice, wow, it's absolutely transformational. When did you start getting into Vipassana meditation? It was about a year after that. So the period that I was talking about previously was the summer of 2011. Mm. And um, it was in the summer of 2012 when I did my first course, a friend had told me about it and I knew that I wanted to do some type of meditation. Like I didn't, I didn't at that point know the benefits of meditation, not the way they're known now. Yes. Um, but I just knew like I had some like intuitive pull towards it. Like I knew that I, I would benefit from it. And um, for some reason, you know, a good friend of mine did it. And it was so telling when he, he wrote to us an email after he did his first 10 day course and all he could write about was love, compassion, and goodwill. And it was so surprising because this is someone that I used to do a lot of drugs with, that I used to like hang out with, party with all the time. I never once heard him even utter the words like love, compassion, and goodwill. 
So seeing that for my friend, I was like, wow. I was like, what happened? And whatever happened to you, I want some of that too. Mm, How nice is that? And tell us a bit about, like I know little bits about Vipassana meditation and it's it's based on Buddhist theories. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's, it's the Buddhist teaching. Um, It's been around for 2,600 years and it... It's essentially a concentrate. Sorry, it's essentially a practice where you, um, you know, develop your morality. You take a certain degrees of, of vows when you start there. So you, you know, you you choose not to kill, not to steal, not to utter lies, no sexual misconduct, no intoxicants. So during those ten days, you're following those rules, and then on top of that, you start um, learning how to concentrate your mind by observing your breath. And you do that for the first three days so that you can really sort of settle your mind down and have it focus. And then in the last seven days, you practice the actual um, Vipassana practice that helps purify your mind. And it's, um, it's literally a deconditioning process where you're purifying the mind of all the old conditioning that's, that it's had for, you know, all throughout your life that you've been building on. Um, without even quite realizing how many times you've been reacting and how that really imprints the mind. Um, but yeah, it's essentially, you know, almost like putting your your mind in a dishwasher. You're mm-hmm. literally just cleaning it up. And when you come out, um, you find that the old habits that you had, you, whenever they come up and you want to do them, you feel a little more room in your mind mm-hmm. so that you get to decide like, oh, is this the best thing for me? Or could I choose another option? So a lot of times when you hear people talk about, oh, it's so important to pause, to pause. Well, you know, Vipassana is literally something that really helps build that mental muscle so that you can pause and choose wisely. You know, what is it that I should do in this moment, even if the moment is chaotic? So these are are retreats that you've been on and Mm -hmm. they roughly, I know the length of them changes, but say mostly they're around 10 days or so. Yeah, the first one, in this particular tradition, the first one is 10 days because it takes a while to really um, cultivate these qualities of the mind because, you know, we're all really good at reading and writing and, you know, learning different things, but it's very different to like develop your awareness Mm. um, or to develop your equanimity, you know, your ability to just observe things as they are. Um, So these are qualities that, you know, they they need to be cultivated very intentionally and um, they require time to really be good at it. You know, it's it's similar to like, if you're going to learn a language, you're not going to learn it by just practicing for an hour. Yes. You're going to, it's going to take a while for you to really get good at it. And in these retreats, they're silent retreats and you do Mm -hmm. very, very long meditations. Had you done much meditation before that? And sometimes they're 10 hour meditations. Is that correct? Yeah, but you're not meditating 10 hours straight. You're, yeah. um, you, you could be meditating upwards of 10 hours a day. Yes. Um, but interspersed throughout that, you have plenty of breaks and, you know, you have lunch, you have breakfast, you have tea in the evening. Um, so, you know, before I had, I had um, gone to my first course, I remember I had meditated one time for 20 minutes oh with my, my God. wife. <laughs> one and time. We, yeah, just one time for 20 minutes, my wife and I decided... Let's, let's try to meditate. And we had no idea what we were doing. We had no technique. You know, I literally just sat there for 20 minutes and nothing like that. We you know, got, basically got nothing from it. <laughs> and, um, 
And I think that was actually pretty helpful when I went to Vipassana, just going in there as a total novice, having no preparation. Like all I really had was my determination to finish the course. Yeah. And, um, and it was good starting um, without really having too much background because mm. then I was able to take in the instructions without pushing against them and just, you know, it's like, okay, let me just follow what you want me to do as best as possible, these instructions that I'm being given. Yes. You know, I've been on, I've never been on a Vipassana retreat but I've been on meditation retreats before where we'll do like four and a half hours in stints of meditation. And, you know, when I think about that, I'm like, oh my God, that's so long. But really when you're so deep into it, it's it's really not long at all. And I mean, you have absolutely, time just absolutely dilates. You do not know yeah. how long, it seems like, literally it seems like maybe an hour. It absolutely flies because you're elevated to almost another realm. Yeah. It's quite interesting what happens when you start practicing deep meditation and time gets really funky. Um, you, I, one thing that I noticed off the bat after I did a few courses is that time goes by faster when I actually put effort into the, into meditating. Mm. Like if I'm sort of, um, just like dilly dallying and, you know, want to spend a little extra time in my room or I can want to try to like even avoid meditating in the course, time goes by slower. But if I actually practice and do what I'm supposed to, you know, be there for, um, time goes by much more quickly. And it's it's interesting because you spend the whole day with your eyes closed, so you know you're not, and you're most of the day you're inside, so you don't really see the transitions of the day. And um, you know you're basically spend ten hours in darkness mm-hmm. and inside of yourself, and it's it, it does move time quickly sometimes, but it changes when you did get to spend all that time within, it must have been quite turbulent to begin with. What was that like? <laughs> yeah, it was so turbulent. Um, you know, it's funny looking back on it um, because it was it was just rough. I remember the first course I did in particular, um, I think I spent the first seven days planning how I was going to run away. <laughs> like how I was going to escape the course. <laughs> and, and what what ended up keeping me there was the fact that the person that I had gotten a ride from, and this is before the times of like Uber and Lyft and all of that ride sharing. Um, I had gotten, a, I, at the time I was staying in Portland, Oregon, and I took the course in the middle of Washington state, which was about an hour North of where I was staying. And um, we were in the middle of nowhere. Um, so, I was, you know, thinking about leaving, but I knew that the person who was, who I got a ride with, he wasn't going anywhere. And that was my only way of leaving. So once that really dawned on me that I couldn't leave, I was like, okay, now I'm going to try my best and I'm just going to focus here. And this is what I've got. This is my situation. And I'm going to make the best of it by just, you know, this is what I came to do. So I'm going to try to learn as much as I can. What did you discover about yourself after that first Vipassana meditation retreat? Um, I think I discovered a lot of like beautiful and rough emotions. Mm. Um, I think I, I, I got to experience my emotions much more clearly and without being so attached to them. You know, um, I also discovered a lot of beauty. I remember when, when the course was over, I was able to like look at trees and just kind of feel everything mm. with the a new crispness, you know, everything yes. was just so crisp. And, um, 
And I, I remember like I was pretty blocked up for so many years that I wouldn't, you know, I couldn't really cry. And, um, I remember like tears come like flowing like much more easily after that. And just like a new sense of peace and compassion with the people around me. I remember just being a lot more gentle and that was my, my beginning mm. of like learning how to be gentle with those around me. It truly is that you become reborn in the same life. Oh, absolutely. I really, I wrote that once um, in, in my first book. I remember you can, you can be reborn countless times in one lifetime, mm. something along those lines. The understanding of that is absolutely magical because it means that it doesn't matter how you grew up, what your past is. We, can, we all have the ability to start again and you can start again from mm. any moment. Absolutely. And you know, what's interesting is that when you continue um, meditating, there's, you know, that just keeps happening over and over again. So like when you go to another course, you don't know what you're going to let go of mm. and how the process of letting that go will essentially change your identity, like your interests, your likes, your dislikes. They'll keep changing over time, especially as you continue cleansing your mind. And then what made you start writing poetry? Um, it was interesting. I, I saw about three courses in. I just felt this like burning sense in my intuition that I should write, you know, and I had never really written before that. Um, and I, I had never had, I never felt like I was particularly skilled at writing or anything like that, but I felt, you know, I remember clearly thinking what you understand will change and you don't know, and, you know, you don't know much yet. You're still growing, but right, like right about healing. You know, you know that you're actually healing now, mm. you know, um, start sharing because you don't know who, what's going to help or, or how it's going to impact people. And it's interesting because um, if you've seen my writing you know, I don't really give people clear instructions or anything like that on life. I'm, I'm, what I'm really doing is just sharing explorations, different things that I've stumbled across because I really don't consider myself a teacher or anything like that. You know, I've never, I don't teach meditation, nothing like that. I really, um, I myself, can, like I consider myself an explorer and I, you know, very seriously practice meditation, but I love the idea of being a student. Um, but even as a student, I like to share my notes. In your writings, uh, and especially in your book, Inward, you talk a lot about self-love and mm. you say you need to love yourself before you love others. Why do you think you lived for so long with a closed heart? Um, I think, you know, and it's interesting, I think you can love others if you don't love yourself, but the, if you're able to truly love yourself, the love you have for others will fully blossom. Mm. It will be able to reach an entirely new level. Um, I think I lived with a closed heart for so long. Just, I was afraid of what was inside of there. I, I didn't know, you know, and whenever I um, felt the bubbling up of these emotions that wanted attention, um, I would just recoil with fear because I just didn't have um, a tool or a method with which to engage with myself. And because it wasn't something that was taught culturally, um, you know, I didn't, I, my parents didn't teach me how to be introspective. Um, and their parents didn't teach them how to be introspective. So all we knew how to do was just survive. And um, I, th I think it's interesting because when you start dealing with yourself in an introspective manner, I think that's when you really open up the, door, the, the doors to thriving. Um, but I think it was just simple fear and just not knowing, you know, how, how can you 
reinvent the wheel over and over. I think it's, it's beautiful when someone can just teach you like, here's a practice that has helped me so much. And it, it did start with radical honesty, but I think the real deep healing began when, um, when I started meditating. Mm. And I think within meditation, observing our darkness is the key to our happiness. Mm-hmm. It can be absolutely. It can be so unbelievably frightening at times as well, and and hard, but then absolutely liberating. What have been your experiences with that? You know, there's so much dissatisfaction. It's so interesting because even you know we get so attached to the good moments and so fearful of the low moments. And we don't quite see that fear is also a form of attachment Mm. um, because we're recoiling against it. There's like, we're, we're attached to pleasant things. So this is why I'm reacting with fear towards this. Um, But I think what I really got was just embracing the fact that there are always going to be ups and downs in life. Like even if I'm okay, even if I feel internal peace, even if I um, have progressed very deeply in my healing, then there are going to be loved ones around me who may struggle at one point or another. Or, you know, something beautiful that I've really enjoyed may end. So how will I face these moments where I prefer for something different to happen, but this is the reality, right? This Mm -hmm. is what's happening and I can't quite change it because I don't have control over everything. So one thing that has actually given me more happiness is just embracing the ups and downs of life and their dissatisfying nature. Mm. That's so true. And I think one of the biggest things that people are so fearful of is change. Mm. And especially with everything that's happened in our world recently, there's been such Mm. a huge amount of change for everyone and it's been unbelievably frightening. But at the same time, you say the flow of change is so powerful that resisting it will only cause difficulty. And I have discovered that for myself. You don't even realise when you're so holding on to something or you really want an outcome and, you know, you're pushing, pushing to get the outcome you want. Never, it's never going to work for you. The more that you take your hands off the steering wheel and just be aligned with where you want to go and what you want to do, then you allow life to then flow. Absolutely. I mean, you said it so well. I, I think so much of my mental tension in the past has come from rejecting change. Mm. Where you know, I, I like this. Like, I this what's happening in the moment is something I like. So then when it's over, I find myself just trying to replicate it. But then it's never quite the same as it was before. So being attached to these mental images, to these particular, you know, uh, sensations that I'm getting of like, you know, of what I'm receiving from, from the world around me, it's just so much better when you can just, you know, be there when things are good and also be there when things are bad. Like, and just understanding that they're going to keep fluctuating. This mm-hmm. is part of the ephemeral reality of life, that everything's just going to keep flowing. And it's funny because the more that I meditate, the more that I see not only my sense of identity, but also life in general as a river. It's just constantly moving, moving, mm-hmm. moving. Yes, I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, they say that the, the, only, <laughs> the only given we have in life is that we will die. Like, everyone will die one day. Otherwise, life is complete uncertainty. And like any situation that is good or bad, this too shall pass. You know, we mm-hmm. don't stay in the depths of despair forever. Everything everything kind of goes up and goes down. You say when the body is tired, the mind will create worries. And, I mean, we've all experienced that before. 
What is the best way that you have found to try and dissipate those worries when they do arise? Oh, and this, I love that you asked that because it's something that I practice even without meditation. And I think it's something that I was even um, trying to do before that, before I actually learned how to meditate is just like the like conscious, intentional bringing myself back to the present moment. Mm. Like if I'm just swimming in my mind and just creating all this like havoc unnecessarily. So like literally unnecessarily causing myself misery. Um, I just bring my attention back to what's happening around me. And that's that to me is like, um, you know, when you're meditating, there's so many different ways to meditate and so many different techniques, but this feels almost like a little separate to that, where it's just like simple life. Like what, like, am, am I swimming in my mind? And if I'm swimming in my mind, is it doing me any good? If the answer is no, then pull yourself out of it. Mm. And, and sometimes it just takes like constant re- re- repetition because that's all you have. Because it's so funny because we live in such a fast paced world where we expect rather immediate results. And that, you know, the, the mind doesn't work like that. It, 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 it is the way it is because it's been cultivated in that direction for a long time. So to be able to move it and drive it in different ways, it's going to require that same sort of patience and persistence to continue giving it, um, you know, a new shape so that it behaves differently. Isn't it funny when I think when you are unconscious to what your mind is thinking, you don't realise that sometimes you will make an absolute mess out of a situation that's not, it's doesn't, it's not even existent. The mind will absolutely attach itself to the negatives <laughs> because that's what we're used to doing. And it's only when you do practice really conscious awareness and meditation where you really realise that you're able to change your thought patterns to not be those fearful ones or attach themselves to those really negative thoughts. Right. You know, even just listening to you say that, it reminds me that this is a real, like when you're just jumping into the negative thoughts, then you're sort of in a survival mentality, mm. right? Like if, if this is the situation in front of you and all I see is negativity coming out of it, then you're almost like still in survival mode. You're just trying to survive. And I've noticed that in myself, even when I go, um, like before I go to retreats, I often find that I'll, my mind will sometimes be like turning into that negativity and I'll start seeing a lot of problems in my life. And I've had this experience where like, after I come out of a course, I have no more problems. Like what I thought were problems actually were self-made problems Mm -hmm. and what I thought were difficulties or walls, you know, there's actually nothing there. And, um, I come out, you know, I, I feel like I go in with problems and I come out with a bunch of solutions and I've had that experience a number of times, but it's interesting because, you know, you go and you, you, you go to courses, you meditate daily and you start developing that way of living without always having to go to courses, but there's a special like effect that happens when you're just like, you know, you get to put your mind in a place that's so clear for such an extended period Mm. of time. You're like, wow, a lot of this misery is self-created. Absolutely. And I think there's something also about, you know, most of these courses, as you said, they put them kind of further away. So, you know, in more remote places and, you know, you don't look at your mobile phone as much. You're obviously not working you're just in there. It's all about the self-love to yourself. And they're absolutely transformational. Yeah. I, you know, in the Vipassana courses that I go to, you actually um, give them your phone and your valuables wow. so that they hold on to them. So 
one of my favorite things is is going there and giving because I'm I'm you know I, a lot of my work is on my phone. Mm. Like I share a lot of things on Instagram. So one of my favorite things is to give them my phone, and I'm just totally unplugged, and it's amazing. It makes such an unbelievable difference. Something that you've written that really stood out to me is about craving, which I want to read. If the mind is craving, then the mind is suffering. And if the mind is suffering, it means we are not quite free. I mean, I just read that and I was like, oh my God, how much stuff do you crave? You're like, the the mind is constantly craving things. When did you learn that? We are in suffering when the mind is craving. And how do you stop your mind from craving? Um, You know, I I learned that very directly from experiencing the Buddhist teaching because that's really, you know, he was the one who kind of made that connection between craving and suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I started meditating, I realized that in my own experience, like every time I'm craving, I'm really experiencing suffering and if I'm still suffering, then I'm not free. Like I'm, I'm sort of trapped within these, all these like mental images that I'm creating in my mind. And it's something that, you know, you, you need to experience, like have that first, firsthand direct experience, but you know, it's really, it's really all just self-created. And it's something that has helped me um, kind of loosen this like attachment to craving is interesting because it's on the side of identity Cause I think, you know, I grew up, I don't know how you grew up, but I, I remember so many people saying that, you know, I never change. Like I'm always going to be the same or, yes. or sort of priding themselves on the fact that they won't change. Yes. I, I think I grew up the same. It's bizarre. In hindsight, it bizarre? looking at it. And I realized that, you know, from understanding craving, there's so much sorrow attached to trying to stay the same. Mm. And if you allow yourself flexibility, mobility, to just like really change with the times, to change into your better self, to, you know, be like a river. Like what I was mentioning before, you don't really want to be a rock. Like a rock's going to have a hard time. Mm. But if you're a river, then you can like flow around things, you know, condense, release. Like there's so much flexibility there. And, you know, craving is sort of similar to that where if you're craving, like a, a craving is literally tension. It's tension that's happening in the mind. It's it's trying to direct yourself towards one particular objective, even if you don't, even if it's not possible for you to get it, um, or if it's very difficult for you to get it. So, and just having that sense of flexibility in my identity and not thinking, you know, trying to let go and throw away that old idea of, you know, I'll always be the same. Yes, has just helped so much. I agree. I think in my past, I used to be so unbelievably rigid, and a lot of it comes from upbringing and Mm. safety, just needing that safety, that constant, you know. So being really rigid allows you to be able to control things. But then I realised that that wasn't getting me anywhere. And the more that you're able to, I think it was Deepak Chopra said, be like a reed in in the wind and just be able to kind of flow. And when you are able to flow, that's when life will be able to flow with you. And I have found that to be so unbelievably life-changing. Yeah, I really agree. I I think, you know, when we don't allow ourselves to grow, because I think a lot and in that movement, like moving with nature, right? Because nature is just flowing change. Mm. Um, If we're not allow ourselves, not allowing ourselves to flow with nature, then 
something's not quite right, um, you know, then that means that we're not really growing. And if we're not growing, then we're, then we're probably hurting. And there's something to, to that there where if I'm, if I'm allowing myself to be a part of this river of life, then I would welcome growth. Yes, I definitely agree. In Inward, your book, you say, never forget the ones who saw greatness in you, even in your darkest moments. Who was that for you? Oh, that's funny. Um, I think one person in particular is my friend Karina. Um, it's, she's someone who I organized with back in the day. Also my friend Shaka as well. Um, both people that I organized with who in, um, when I was between 15 to 18, and they were both in that organization, Boston Youth Organizing Project. Um, and, but then in that period where, where, you know, I was just like going through my dark phase and, um, not treating myself well, being unkind to the people around me, just generally being like absent and disconnected. Um, there were a few people who still saw my potential, even when I couldn't. And, um, that to me, like later on, I was able to recognize that because I spent a lot of that time, um, just completely, you know, had no self-awareness. I didn't know what was happening. Um, but then after that, when I was able to look at that, I, I saw how they were so special to just mm-hmm. like, um, you know, even though they were sort of saying it indirectly, I knew that they were like, I know Diego's going through tough times, but he's going to come out better. There's something about those people, how, how important they are in everyone's life. Like I, there's a few actually men that have played such a pivotal role in my life of seeing my greatness when I definitely didn't think that I could see it. And in my meditations, I give them gratitude and I will cry rivers of tears for these people because honestly, it is so special to be able to be that person as well that sees greatness in someone else. And I remember I interviewed a guy a Mm. couple of years ago and he said there was one person at my school that said that you're brilliant and he was like seven or something and he said I didn't even know what the word brilliant meant but I I then found out what it did and it stuck with me for my whole life and I just thought I'm brilliant I'm brilliant and ever since I've had the people that have really Mm. seen the greatness in me I have then made sure that I pass that on whenever I can to be able to to bring others up as well and and see the greatness in them and be that person who can help other people too. Thank you for that gift. I'm going to try to be much more intentional too, um, especially with my close like friends and family and just, you know, wh- one thing that I find that's so beautiful is when people don't hold back their compliments. Yes. And um, I want to just like, just let it flow even more freely. Um, even if it's a little weird sometimes. I know. It's like we get embarrassed <laughs> or something. It's like, we do, we do. You yeah. know, we, we, it's like we think someone's really great, but we don't want to say it. And at the same time, you know, you can be over the top with it or you can be really sincere and honest. And I think when someone compliments you, you feel so loved by it. So obviously giving that back to someone is so unbelievably important. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about another point that I find really interesting and it can bring you into the darkest depths of your of your heart is competition brings misery. Mm. What have you learned about that over your journey, and especially being such a prominent figure in the Instagram world? 
um, competition will eat you alive, <laughs> you know, and not, it won't be other people. It'll be yourself. It'll be the idea of competition. Um, I think there's one thing I've been trying to combat is the speed, the speed of the world. Um, everything's moving so fast and I found myself definitely getting caught up with that in the beginning when I was first on Instagram. Um, and even still nowadays, I find myself getting caught up in that sort of just like mad rush to produce more work, to make more things. And it's unhealthy, you know, so that's, um, I'm always trying to find ways to use my phone less. Mm. And one aspect of that, um, especially cause I, you know, I'd see my peers who were making a, a amazing things. Um, I could see, you know, how much time they were spending on their phones. Cause they would be, you know, spend a lot of time responding to each person's comment or responding to all of their DMS. And I realized at one point, you know, I, I don't have the like mental capacity to do, to do that. Um, I realized that the more time I spent on my phone, the, the less, um, I didn't feel great. You know, like I, w- I would feel tired. I had, I'd have a less attention for my wife or my family members. Um, and it would really sort of zap my energy. So I had to make a boundary there and just, you know, I'll share, um, the things that I write, um, on, on my main account or on my stories. And then, you know, I hope that the comment section more so becomes a dialogue between people, but it's not necessarily going to be a place that I'm responding to everything Mm -hmm. or even sort of like holding myself to responding to every direct message. Because at the end of the day, like I'm one person and then there's like millions of people trying to get in contact with me. And I don't think it's necessarily good for them or for me. Right. Like, I think it's one that's fine if you want to appreciate what I'm writing, which is absolutely great. You know, I'm grateful for that because it has changed my life. Um, but I'm also just, you know, trying to respect that I'm a human being. And, um, I think what's best for me and especially for the things that I'm creating is for me to just spend more time in quiet in real life, either meditating, reading or writing. Yes. I completely agree. I think I found the same thing as well. How do you not look at people who are doing the same things as you are? Not exactly, obviously no one does exactly the same as you. And, you know, they might have more followers than you or you see them doing things that in your eyes are bigger than what you're doing. How do you not get that jealousy? How do you hold that feeling inside you when that potential jealousy starts to bubble? I think... um it's been a beautiful way to practice sympathetic joy. Yeah. Um, and this is a term that is not widely used um, in English, but it's an idea that's very common in um, the Buddhist teaching, but it's literally to just feel happy for another person's success. And whenever I would feel like, oh, what about me? Or um, all I could think about was like when I would see someone do something cool and if I could only think, Oh, I hope I get there someday. And it's all I, 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 right. But it's like, no, well, how about great for them? Like they're, they're doing a great job. Like I I wish them the best. Maybe they have more success. Mm. Um, and I had to cultivate that, you know, that took a, I took a while because in the beginning, like I said before, right. When I first started writing, like I had only done like three courses and I've, um, you know, had so much more to work on because it takes, it takes a while. It's a long path to like, truly heal yourself and it's an even longer path to liberate yourself Mm. you know to really liberate yourself from craving and misery 
So, you know, I had so much work to do. So I would feel the random thoughts of like jealousy or, or that rushed feeling of competitiveness. So like, you know, how can I do better? How can I keep going? Um, and instead of that, you know, when I see someone else doing great, it's like, this is your opportunity to feel joy for them. Mm-hmm. Like they've worked hard, like, and they're making great things and it's helping people. Great. Let's practice sympathetic joy. And this ties in perfectly. When you heal yourself, you then heal the world. So I think the more that you are able to appreciate others and give them love for their successes, the more you see the river of success flowing your way as well. Absolutely. I think um, there are a lot of uh, like doors that we create or walls that we make in our own mind and they're easily circumvented and broken down when we are just able to, to act in the opposite manner. And um, I have found that the more joy I feel for others much more easily, much more naturally um, that I'm able to, you know, enjoy things better that are happening to me. I've got to read another one of your uh, beautiful passages. I mean, you have millions of them, but this, this is one that really, uh, really stood out to me. They asked her, what is real happiness? And she answered, happiness is not fulfilling every pleasure or getting every outcome you desire. Happiness is being able to enjoy life with a peaceful mind that is not constantly craving more. It is the inner peace that comes with embracing change. And that just basically Mm. sums up everything that we've spoken about. Yeah, that's a good summary. I think that's one of the most important pieces I've written. Um, You know, it's interesting. So if if you've gotten a chance to read um, my first book or not, so that's the, the she that's responding as a character in the book. Um, so a lot of people wonder like, who, who is she? Um, but, um, but often, so initially when I started writing, I I wrote a few pieces that were, um, you know, I wanted them to be so that someone can easily identify with them if they felt a similar experience. But I knew that I didn't want to use the word he, because we have, we have such a long history of patriarchy where, you know, all of our political texts and sacred texts and just everything is sort of denoted with the word he Mm. and it's meant for the general populace. So I knew what I wanted to do, and I know this isn't a perfect solution, but what I wanted to do was just use she as a general so that, you know, when you see the word she, you know, anyone who identifies as anything can see themselves within that word. Um, But then later on, I actually ended up developing a character, um, this wise woman who's um, teaching groups of people. Um, But I think that piece is so important, especially with the line that you're not constantly craving for more because we lose a lot of our happiness, a lot of our joy, even our our ability to connect deeply with someone else because we're already thinking about what's missing or what's next. And when you lose yourself in that, you're literally losing life. You know, you're like, you're you're sort of um, not using your life as best as you can. And to do so best, you really need to have presence. It's so true because I think, you know, you even see this with people who are so unbelievably successful, but they don't stop literally to smell the roses. It's always what's next? What can we do? How can we get bigger? And I mean, I've had this myself as well. And I remember someone said to me, you know, oh, slow down. Look at where you've come from. It's not always about the next thing. And I, I really think about that often now because what is life if we're not enjoying the moment right now? 
Exactly. And I think I've been learning that, um, especially the past few years, because I've had a you know certain degree of success and I'm very grateful for the way that the words that I've been writing have been connecting with other people and supporting them on their journeys. And I wasn't able to fully appreciate that. And now I feel like I'm more able to appreciate the fact that, you know, this has changed my life. The fact that people have bought my books has helped me um, help my mom and dad with their debt. And that's such a gift that the world has like given back to me. Mm. Um, So I'm just grateful for that. You know, I'm grateful and I hope that I'm able to make more things that keep supporting people. But it's, you know, getting trapped in the idea of what's next. It's such a, um, you know, there's another piece that I wrote that's something along the lines of happiness is literally just being able to enjoy what's happening in front of you without thinking, without thinking about what's going to come next. Mm, It's so true. You know, you've become so big and it has happened, you know, over a few years, but it, it, it didn't take forever. Um, how have you been able with your success to tame the ego? Um, I have a number of <laughs> a number of like sort of uh, systems that I have in place um, that helps me just like, you know, because my my to be really honest, like my primary goal in life is to move forward on the path of liberation. Mm. And if my ego is growing, then I am not moving forward. I'm actually moving backwards. Yeah. So after that primary goal comes, you know, doing a good job with Young Pueblo, writing more material and, you know, every other aspect of life. So I measure myself by that primary goal. If I really find that my ego is growing, then I'm not doing any, I'm not doing something right. And everything else that I might be doing in my life is also not going well. So I want that. That's one of the reasons why I set up Young Pueblo. That's why I don't write under Diego Perez was because I wanted to give myself a bit of distance and not have a situation that's built on my face or my image, but it's Mm. something that's built on these words that I've created so that Young Pueblo isn't a person, but it's a body of work. And, you know, when people are like praising Young Pueblo, then it's like, it's a little different from having it heard as like my name. And, you know, I've I've, um, made jokes with my friends, like, you know, Young Pueblo is definitely taking taking over my life, (laughs) you know, taking up my time and all of that. But it still feels a little separate. And I think it feels healthy for me that it isn't just my face. You see the little icon on my Instagram but um, other than that, you know, I'm not putting pictures up of myself and I'm not um, sharing parts of my life, of my everyday life, because mm-hmm. I like to keep that also separate and private. Um, and then I think the biggest um, component is my wife. You know, she's she loves me, but she's not too impressed. You know, she's <laughs> like she, um, <laughs> she really, you know, she supports what I'm doing. And she's also a very serious meditator. Um, and she loves me, but she doesn't treat me in any way that's mm. like different or special. And she definitely lets me know when I could be doing things better. And, um, and I, I love that, you know, I love that she, um, you know, the further, when I finished the manuscript for my first book, um, she, and, and I, she was the first one to read it and she was like, this is a mess. Like we, <laughs> we need to, we need to fix this, you know? So um, a lot of people would like, they've they've enjoyed what I've written, but she's always keeping it real. Yeah. And that really helps. I think it's really important to have those grounding people in your life. And a lot of the time they can be your parents or your partner or 
friends that have known you since you were young and they're, you know, they're like, what is all the fuss about? We know who you oh, are. Oh yeah. My, my friends do not care about <laughs> what I'm, you know, about what I'm doing. And they're, they, my friends are the last people to ask me, like they don't, they don't care about any wisdom that I have. They yes. just, they're just like, they don't ask me any hard questions. They're just like, they just want to hang out. <laughs> That's the best. We yeah. live in a world of polarity. So light and darkness how do you stay in the light as much as possible? Um, I think the rigor of daily meditation. I think that's one thing. Like I have two pillars that set up my day. I have one, I meditate for one hour in the morning and one hour in the evening. And that's what keeps everything going. You know, that's what helps me not only nourish myself and meet myself quietly every day, um, but that's what helps me stay in tune with um, the equanimity that helps me see things clearly in life or see things more clearly in life than I would have without it. And it helps me stay connected to that love, you know, to look, because at the end of every sitting, we practice meta and meta meta is a practice where you're literally sharing the love inside of you with all beings throughout mm. the universe and practicing that every day, even when I don't feel good, um, is such a grounding force that helps me remember that, when I interact with anyone throughout the day, may I do so gently, may I do so kindly, and may I not hurt anyone directly or indirectly as I move about through my life. Mm, that's so beautiful. What's the lesson that took you the longest to learn? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think the the biggest one and the one that I'm definitely working on consistently now is just loosening my idea of the self is just like, cause it, the mind is so eye focused and there are layers to that, that when you keep digging, you know, you think you've dissolved a certain degree of ego and you have, but there's so much more underneath, you know, the ego is literally like an iceberg. It's just massive. So when I am meditating, you know, I really try to focus in on the idea of impermanence and just feeling the impermanence of reality, but then allowing that impermanence to connect with my sense of self and allowing that to allow my sense of self to not be so dense. You know, it's not just like I, 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 but just if I'm really embracing the nature of reality, then you start seeing that I doesn't really exist. Like, yes, like Diego is talking to Sarah right now, but what's happening at the ultimate level? Like I'm literally just a series of subatomic particles that are moving very, very, very rapidly, just mental and physical phenomena interacting in different combinations. And at every single level, the atomic level, the biological level, you know, the physical level, mental level, um, it's all just rapid, rapid change that's happening. So trying to embrace the fact that like, yes, I'm here and Diego's real, but also in a very real sense, Diego is not real. Mm. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? Ooh, I, uh, two pieces. Um, the first one that I got when I, when I did my first, first course um, was, was I was so nervous. You know, I really did not know what I was going into. And, and someone who had done it once before, he told me, be strong. And that be strong got me through the course. You know, just, just remembering that I, that I do have power, that I am strong, that I can do this, that I can complete difficult things. That's helped me so much. And um, the other piece of advice that comes to mind is um, a friend of mine 
told me, you know, whatever your goals are, make them bigger. Mm. And that really, that really kind of changed my life. Yeah. I've had the same advice and it was absolutely life changing. What's Mm -hmm. your favorite prayer? Um, You know, I don't really think about it as a prayer, but I think about it as an intention Mm. and just may all beings be happy. That's something that I'm always Mm. sort of saying, you know, it's a part of Metta, it's a part of the the Metta Sutta, the scripture that when the Buddha um, talked about Metta, um, but that's the key component is just may all beings be happy. That's beautiful. What is a life of greatness to you? I think the life of greatness, it has to be real liberation. And and to me, when when I think of freedom, like real freedom is decreasing the tension that we are causing ourselves. So as I'm decreasing that tension, I'm increasing my freedom. So to me, it's just having that self-awareness to to notice like, yeah, I caused myself a lot of pain. And, And even though people may have hurt me in the past or have done, you know, hard or terrible things or rough things, or if I've had rough experiences, there is still a certain degree of responsibility that we have to accept in in how we're, you know, we create a lot of our worries and a lot of our sorrows, and then we replicate them over and over. So when we're able to step into our own power like that, um, I think then you can really live a life of greatness. Diego Perez, thank you for sharing your beautiful words because they have changed the life of millions. Thank you so much. Thank you for such a beautiful conversation. Really grateful. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.